Amy Hill. Thanks for tuning in to Amy on the Hill, a podcast born out of Jesus's teaching in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, which says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. This is Amy, and you're listening to episode eight of Amy on the Hill. I'm so blessed by the fact that you are listening and participating. If you're a regular listener, you know that we're currently working through the Gospel of Mark and Timothy Keller's book, Jesus the King. But if you're new to the podcast, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so happy you've joined us. I think you're really going to enjoy the discussion today, even if you haven't been reading along with us. Of course, if you want to pick up and read along with us, we'd love to have you join us. All you need to do is grab a copy of Timothy Keller's book, Jesus the King. You can also view a copy of our reading schedule at any time under the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com. Okay, so every week we open the podcast with prayer because we know that apart from the Lord, all of this is in vain. Apart from the Lord, this is just a lot of striving. So let's pause here before we start and ask God to do a work that we can't do. Let's ask him to accomplish what your effort and my words will never accomplish. Our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, the name that is above every name. Lord, please let us feel the weight of that. Let us never be unmoved by that crazy privilege. We lift up the name of Jesus. Hallowed be thy name. Lord, we pray that you would help us. Help us to draw near to you now and tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. Please don't let us go. Because like sheep, we know we'll go astray. As the well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, says, We are prone to wander, Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. Here's our heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We entrust ourselves to you. We put our hope in you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. As always, we ask that you would please be glorified through this effort, this small effort, opening your word, reading a book, listening to a short discussion. It is a small offering, but we pray that you would take this small offering, this child's attempt, and please use it. Please use it to sow seeds of righteousness in each one of us. I know you know 
each and every person praying along. I know that not only do you see them, you love them. Help each individual know your love. Help them to believe that you are proud of them. I know they're so hard on themselves, but you see each one. Each one that is seeking you in this moment. There's a thousand other things they could be listening to. 10,000 distractions at every turn. They're so hard on themselves. Help them to rest in you. Help them to remember you've got them and you love them and you are working in and through them. The enemy wants all of us to think we're failing at this, but we're not because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, our victory is sure. Thank you for that assurance today. Thank you for Jesus. It is in Jesus' name we hope and we pray. Amen. Okay, so this week we read from the Bible, Mark chapters 4 and 5. And from Timothy Keller's book, Jesus the King, we read chapter 5, The Power, and chapter 6, The Waiting. And so these chapters of the Bible and the chapters of the book will be the basis for our discussion today. And if you're reading along, I'm sure you will agree that this was another great week and you can get used to me saying that um, because honestly I think this whole book is great but this really was another great week another insightful thought-provoking and challenging week of reading if you're on schedule with our reading out of the gospel of Mark I did want to point out that there are a lot of passages of scripture that Keller doesn't address in this book. And he mentioned that at the outset, back in the before section of the book, Keller put us on notice that he was not going to be able to expound on every verse in Mark. Uh, but instead, uh, Keller chose to focus on a number of specific texts that he thought best traced the narrative of Jesus's life or would expand on the themes of Jesus's identity and purpose. So again, if you notice that there is a lot more to the Gospel of Mark than we are discussing, uh, you noticed well. But like Keller in our discussion today, we're also going to stick to the specific portions of Mark that Keller chose to dissect in our reading of Jesus the King this week. Okay, so let's get started. Um, I'm actually going to mix things up a bit this week and start our discussion today by looking first at chapter six, the waiting, and then we're gonna get into chapter five, the power, and then we're actually gonna circle back again and discuss more of chapter six. And I'm doing that um, because I think it makes sense this way, uh, at least it does to me. Hopefully it will for you as well. Okay, so Keller opened chapter six, the waiting, with a quote from the original Book of Common Prayer by Thomas Cranmer. And the quote said this, Grant that we may follow the example of Jesus's patience. Grant that we may follow the example of Jesus's patience. Does anyone else feel the weight of that prayer? 
Jesus's patience. What comes to your mind when you think of patience? Initially, we might think of examples like standing in line at the grocery store waiting for a young child who's trying to put on his own shoes, cleaning up a spill, waiting for a friend who's running late. But we obviously also need patience in more serious, long-term circumstances like the patience we need to work for years and years at a job and on a schedule and for pay that we don't love. The patience we need to have joy in long-term singleness. The patience we need during years and maybe a lifetime of infertility. The patience we need in the midst of a long-term illness or chronic pain, the patience we need through years of paying off debt, the patience we need when no one sees or acknowledges or compliments or celebrates our patience, the patience we need for patience that doesn't promise a reward in this life, Patience that asks us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Patience that challenges us to believe that God blesses those who patiently endure testing and temptation because afterward they will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him, which is James 1.12. Keller explained in this chapter, The Waiting, that Cranmer's prayer, grant that we may follow the example of Jesus's patience, was written to be used on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, the time when we remember Jesus's sacrificial death on the cross. And this may sound weird to some of you, um, but that's exactly what comes to my mind when I think of patience. I think of death. I think of death to myself and my timeline and my plans. That's what patience feels like to me. It feels like what Jesus is talking about in Mark chapter 8. And we haven't gotten there yet, obviously, in our Bible reading. But in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Patience feels like self-denial. It feels like losing my life. It feels like picking up my cross. Patience to me feels like death to myself. Of Cranmer's prayer, uh, grant that we may follow the example of Jesus' patience, Keller asks, what? does he mean by patience? And he answers, patience is love for the long haul, is bearing up under difficult circumstances without giving up or giving into bitterness. Patience means working when gratification is delayed. It means taking what life offers, even if it means suffering without lashing out and when you're in a situation that you're troubled over or when there's a delay or pressure on you or something's not happening that you want to happen, there's always a temptation to come to the end of your patience. You may well have lost your patience before you're even aware of it. 
Okay, so patience is obviously not easy, and we're obviously not done discussing patience, but let's hit pause on chapter six for a minute, and let's get back to chapter five, the power. We will revisit chapter six before the end of the podcast, but for now, let's consider that storm we read about in Mark chapter four. I'm going to read Mark chapter four, verses 35 to 41 for us now. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Okay, so let's picture it. We've got the disciples who Keller tells us would have been accustomed to impressive thunderstorms and squalls on the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples were caught in such a bad storm that they feared they were actually going to drown. Remember, a lot of these guys were fishermen. So being in boats was their area of expertise. This was not outside their comfort zone. They were generally right at home out on the water. And I think, I think it's situations like that where we can really get into some trouble. What do you think? Do you think sometimes we don't think we have much need for God in the areas where we are strong? Or am I alone in that? Please don't tell me I'm alone in that because seriously, Think about it. We might be really aware of our need for God if we're going into a situation where we're uncomfortable or where we don't have enough or where we're not qualified. But in those situations where we feel like we've got it handled, you know, like situations where we feel like we can affect and control the outcome, we'll usually go for it in our own strength. And that's what the disciples seem to be doing here. They're doing their thing out there on the water. They're letting Jesus sleep thinking, you know, they can handle it. Until they realize they can't handle it. They're swamped and they're getting ready to sink. Isn't that a great picture of life? Left to ourselves, I feel like a lot of our boats start to swamp and we all find ourselves like the disciples asking teacher, Don't you care if we drown? And of course he does, but that doesn't mean he doesn't allow hardships because as we discussed last week, he does. If you listened in, you'll remember that last week we were talking about the discipline of the Lord, how it's often exceedingly difficult, but it's also a great comfort to know that God cares enough to keep us from going too far. And after the podcast released last week, it occurred to me that there was another point 
I needed to clarify, and I'm sorry I didn't say this last week. Again, it occurred to me after the fact, but I think it's very important to mention that all hard things that happen to us are not always a form of discipline. There is an account at the beginning of John chapter 9 where Jesus and his disciples are walking past a blind man, and Jesus' disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the works of God would be displayed in him. We also read in the Old Testament that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil, and yet Job walked through exceedingly difficult times. And of course, Jesus, who is entirely without sin, is another example. He suffered immensely in obedience to his Father in order to redeem us. So again, while there's many instances in which we do suffer as a result of discipline, that's not always the reason for our suffering. Uh, Regardless of why we suffer, uh, we can be assured that our suffering is never wasted. God will work all things together for our good and for his glory. He does not take suffering lightly and he doesn't allow it flippantly. He always has a purpose for suffering, a greater purpose, often a greater purpose than we can understand. And he'll always use suffering to refine us. Uh, Hebrews 5.8 teaches us that we learn obedience through what we suffer. So suffering, though painful, brings forth something beautiful can be bittersweet. It's like a paradox. But again, suffering is not always a result of sin. It's not always a form of discipline. I just wanted to say that, okay? So let's jump back to the story of Jesus quieting the storm and calming the sea. And let's consider the disciples' reaction to Jesus after he does this. Keller points out that before Jesus calms the storm, the disciples are afraid. When they're in the midst of that storm, The Bible uses the word afraid, but after Jesus calms the storm, the Bible says they're terrified. Why? Why are they terrified? Why do you think they're terrified? I think they're terrified because they start to realize Jesus is all-powerful. But honestly, they're not sure if they can trust him because they can't control him. And someone with that much power who can't be controlled or managed is terrifying. And they're asking, who is this? Who is this? I'm reading Jesus the King in paperback. And in my version at the top of page 59, Keller mentions another quote by his favorite author, C.S. Lewis. It's a quote from the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first book in a series called The Chronicles of Narnia. We referenced another Chronicles of Narnia book in our reading and on the podcast last week, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And you'll remember there was a great lion, Aslan, in that story. And in this Uh, book, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I'm going to read a quote from you where the characters in the book are learning for the first time about the great lion, Aslan. And the story goes like this. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. 
Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. terrifying when we stop and think how little control we have. I think in this culture filled with never-ending distractions, we don't have a lot of space to think and reflect. And it seems like people are increasingly suffering from things like panic attacks and anxiety and depression. And I haven't done a study on it or anything, but I think it's connected. I think it's connected. We're all dying and everyone we love is dying and we're watching Netflix and scrolling Facebook and running from one thing to the next. But at any time, in any number of ways, this could be over without warning. Life as we know it could be drastically changed through illness or disability or death and it's terrifying. That's exactly where I was after I had... My first daughter. For whatever reason, um, the Lord worked in my life so that after I had my daughter Carolyn, I became so ridiculously aware of how little control I had. I would um, sit up and watch her breathing. I was afraid to even sleep some nights. I couldn't keep her from getting sick. I couldn't guarantee she wouldn't get cancer. I was just super aware of the fact that I couldn't keep her alive. And honestly, at that point in my life, I didn't trust God. I didn't think I could go to him with my fears because I thought surely he would put me to the test. You know, maybe he'd take her from me to see if I really loved him. These were the thoughts that I had. And um, I remember one night or uh, actually I think it was one morning um, because it was still dark. Um, one morning I went downstairs by myself before anyone in the house was awake. And I remember it was like I opened my hand. It was like my hand had been in a fist. And, uh, I didn't really do this, but metaphorically, uh, 
it was like I opened my fist, I opened my hand to God and I said, she is yours. She's always been yours. I've always been yours. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't, I know that I'm not guaranteed to always understand what you do. I know some things are going to happen in my life and her life that are really going to hurt. But I trust you. I have no other choice. I trust you. And I did. I did. And um, after Jesus quieted the storm and calmed the sea, he asked the disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? I wonder if on some level what Jesus meant here was, Do you still not believe that I'm good? Do you still have no faith that I'm good? Why are you so afraid? At this point, the disciples had seen Jesus heal many people, including the paralytic we read about last week, and the people um, were bringing him all kinds of people with different ailments for healing. He even healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, as we also read about. Um, and yet the disciples are terrified when they realize what kind of power he has, because it doesn't make sense to them. They had just been through a storm they thought was going to take their life. Why in the heck would Jesus, who supposedly loved them, have allowed them to endure that if he had the power to stop it or to prevent it from happening in the first place? He doesn't make sense to them. And if we're honest, he also often doesn't make sense to us. We acknowledge that it's terrifying when we stop and think about how little control we have. But it's also terrifying when we realize how much control God has. If God is good and God is all-powerful, why is there so much suffering in this world? Why do bad things happen to others? Why do bad things happen to me if God really loves me? Do we really know this God at all? Who are we dealing with here? Like the disciples, we need to ask ourselves, who is this? Okay, so let's pivot back to chapter six, the waiting. You'll remember we started out our discussion with Thomas Cranmer's prayer, grant that we may follow the example of Jesus's patience which was written to be used on Palm Sunday, which is around the time when we remember Jesus' sacrificial death. And you'll remember I said, though it may sound weird, that's exactly what comes to my mind when I think of patience. I think of death to myself and my timeline and my plans. That's what patience feels like to me. And this death to self, this death to our plans and our agenda and our timeline can take place on a really big scale in really significant ways, but it takes place on a small scale too. And sometimes it's actually the small things that end up being the hardest for us. I referenced a book in last week's podcast called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And in that book, Bridges references another book entitled If God Loves Me, why can't I get my locker open? 
And when I read that title, it made me laugh. Uh, but it also convicted me because I had just had a difficult experience trying to upload something on my computer, something that should have taken five minutes, ended up taking me two hours, and I was frustrated. And when I read that portion of the book um, where Jerry Bridges references this, this other book, I realized that I had felt that way myself. I was thinking, if God loves me, why won't this work? Why isn't this easier? Why am I struggling with this? If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? And Bridges wrote of that book, we may smile a little at the scene such a title brings to our imagination, but the fact is, this is the plane of adversity on which many of us live each day. And it's in the crucible of even this minor level of adversity that we're tempted to wonder, can I trust God? In Mark chapter 5, we read about a man who was the ruler of a synagogue and whose 12-year-old daughter was on the verge of death. And the Bible says that the father of this girl seeks out Jesus, falls at his feet, and pleads earnestly with Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And the Bible says that Jesus went with him. But on their way, as you know, if you read... Um, the account in Mark this week, and if you read uh, through our book study, something happens. There's an interruption. A woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years reaches out in faith and grabs Jesus's garment, and she's immediately healed. But Jesus feels the power go out from him, and so he stops everything to find out who touched him. Meanwhile, the Bible says that while Jesus was speaking to this woman, people came to the little girl's father and said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. And he goes to the ruler's house with Peter, James, and John, and with the child's father and mother. They go into where the child was, and Jesus resurrects the child from the dead. Now again, remember the book of Mark is believed to be the first-hand testimony of Peter, and Peter was one of the few people in this room. So Peter saw this. Peter was a witness to this, and this is what Peter is saying happened. And I want to ask you, what stands out to you in this account? For some reason, for me, I can't help but notice that this little girl was 12 years old. I don't know if it's because I am a mom of three little girls and I just think about how that would feel as a parent, uh, the 12 years you spent with your child, building memories, loving and cherishing that child, and yet still, still so young, only 12 years old. Um, so that kind of stood out to me when I read that she was 12 years old. But meanwhile... Uh, the Bible says that this woman was suffering for 12 years. 12 years. Uh, I don't believe in coincidences, and I definitely don't believe in coincidences in the Bible. Uh, this woman was suffering the whole time this child was alive. And uh, as Tim points out, the severity of this little girl's condition, as opposed to the woman's condition, 
um, makes Jesus's choice to stop and talk with the woman seem irrational and even reckless. Um, but it also, for me, causes me to stop and think because, you know, the father was no doubt suffering while he waited for Jesus to finish his conversation with the woman. But his suffering was very short compared to the woman's suffering over a period of 12 years, 12 years during which he enjoyed his daughter and his life. And, you know, I don't have anything else really profound to add to that other than the fact that it came to my attention and my mind when I was reading, when I noticed that the woman and the child had 12 years in common. Of timing in this chapter, Keller writes, every culture has a different sense of time. Timing is relative and everybody has a sense of this is the right time, but not this. God's sense of timing, Keller warns, will confound ours no matter what culture we're from. His grace rarely operates according to our schedule. If you can't tell, I'm kind of obsessed with this Jerry Bridges book, Trusting God. Uh, there are just so many things that relate to what we're reading in Mark and in Keller's book, Jesus the King. So anyway, I want to quote him again here. In Trusting God, Bridges wrote, I once attended a seminar on the subject of Christians and stress. One of the speaker's main points was that if we want to live less stressful lives, we must learn to live with a single agenda, God's agenda. He pointed out that we tend to live under two agendas, ours and God's, and that the tension between them sets up stress. Isn't that a good word? We must learn to live with a single agenda, God's agenda. In the story we read out of Mark, Jesus would not be hurried, even though the circumstances were urgent, even though he loved the little 12-year-old girl, even though it was painful for the little girl's father and the other people who loved her. Our God is a God that cannot always be understood. He cannot be manipulated or controlled. Um, just a little confession uh, from me personally, I used to try to keep God in my pocket uh, by being a good Christian. You know, I would like try to keep God in my debt. Like, I'm doing all this for you. Um, so I know you'll get my back when I need you in the way that I need you or on the timeline that I need you. Uh, but again and again, in his love for me, God refused to submit to me. He's taught me time and time again that he is Lord. He is Lord. He is God. And I am his servant and we're working according to his agenda. And as Keller said, his grace rarely operates according to my schedule. If you haven't been able to tell, uh, I'm one of those weird people who reads multiple books at once. I'm usually reading through uh, four or five books at the same time. Right now, I'm obviously reading Jesus the King, uh, Trusting God, the book I keep referencing. And another one of the books I'm currently reading is a book called Nothing to Prove by Jenny Allen. And in her book, Nothing to Prove, Jenny did a beautiful job of summarizing the story found in John chapter 11 when loved ones of Jesus were faced with a crisis. 
The Bible specifically tells us in John chapter 11, verse 5, that Jesus loved Martha, her sister Mary, and Lazarus. These were his people. You know, like Jesus did ministry with larger crowds, but he did life with a smaller crew of people, just like us. His disciples were obviously part of that smaller crowd, and he also seems to have a closer relationship with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And Lazarus gets really sick, and so obviously Mary and Martha send for Jesus. But the Bible says when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And I want to read you Jenny's version of this story uh, told from the perspective of Mary. And again, this is out of her newest book, uh, Nothing to Prove, based on John chapter 11. Something in me knew he wasn't coming. The day was gray and rain fell gently as if the sky shared our sorrow. Martha still hoped, staring toward the path that led into our village. But I could see Lazarus fading, and all our efforts to make contact with Jesus were exhausted. Surely the news had reached him, but he hadn't yet come. He wasn't coming. Months earlier, sitting at his feet, I was left with one overwhelming and unfamiliar conviction. Trust. I wanted to trust him and keep hoping in this moment but trust and hope were washing away. Either he knew and chose to withhold his healing, or he was not as powerful as I believed him to be. Both possibilities scared me. Our lives had shifted completely to revolve around Jesus. We told everyone in our village who we believed him to be. Most people thought we were crazy, and I could live with that. But what if he wasn't the Messiah, or what if we just were not important enough to him? If Lazarus dies, Martha and I had no one. We were two single women without a father or mother. How would we provide for ourselves? Who would protect us? Martha and I were strong, but we weren't strong enough for this. Every local remedy had been exhausted. There was nothing left to do but pray and beg God to save him. That day my brother died. Life as we knew it was over. Our beautiful young brother was gone. My grief in losing him was made heavier with anger about our misplaced hope in a savior in heaven and a good God great plan. All that died along with my brother. I felt as if the foundation of my existence was shifting and breaking apart. The traditional mourning rituals began and he still didn't come. Each day that he was not here, my doubt grew and the foundation slipped further away. And then, after four days, I heard his voice. Martha ran to him first, asking why he had not come. I saw him coming toward me. There were no words, only tears. I looked into his eyes, and he was weeping too. His tears dissolved some of my fear. Of course he loved us. He turned to the tomb and asked, that the stone be rolled back. What was he doing? But what could he do now? He lifted his eyes. I pray you hear me. I know you do. But I want my friends here to know that too. I felt as if he had seen straight into my soul. 
to the doubts that had plagued me for days, and that his prayer was for me. He knew I didn't believe God heard us, that he was good, that he was able. It was as if Jesus could see the wreckage of my faith. Then he called my brother to come out. Wrapped in his burial clothes, Lazarus walked out. My dead brother walked into the light. Jesus did not just heal my brother that day. He healed me. My broken faith was restored, and my paralyzing fear dissolved by the power of his words. If he could defeat death, there was nothing he could not do. I will never doubt again. He is here to save the world, and he is powerful enough to do it. You guys, I'm so sorry I'm going so long today. I still have actually so much I want to talk about, but I'm going to force myself to end. As we close, I want us to remember the way Jesus lovingly dealt with each of the people we considered in our reading this week and on the podcast today. He wasn't interested in quick fixes, but he was interested in healing. He was interested in connecting, in going deeper, as we discussed last week, in growing the faith and trust of those he served. He always proved to be faithful, to work all things together for good for those who loved him, and in all circumstances, though rarely in the way one might expect, God was always glorified. We started this podcast by praying along with Thomas Cranmer Grant that we may follow the example of Jesus' patience. At the close of chapter 6, Keller explained that the complete prayer actually read, grant us that we may both follow the example of Jesus' patience and also be made partakers of his resurrection. In order for us to live, we have to die. We have to die to our schedule and our agenda and our wish list. And we have to trust a God that we can't control, that we can't manipulate, and sometimes that we can't understand. And we have to believe that he is good, that he is kind, that he's trustworthy, and that he knows a heck of a lot better than we do. This week, Keller asked us, right now, is God delaying something in your life? Are you ready to give up? Are you impatient with him? Are you trying to hurry Jesus? Keller challenged us. Like the little girl Jesus lovingly tells to get up, let him take you by the hand and let him do what he wants to do. He loves you completely. He knows what he's doing. Soon it will be time to wake up. Let us be conformed to his patience that we might be partakers of his resurrection. Okay, so don't forget that Lent begins on March 1st. If you would like to participate in some type of fast in the weeks leading up to Easter, you may want to be praying about uh, what that will be for you. You might want to fast from some kind of food, from some type of social media, from Netflix, shopping, who knows. Seek the Lord on it. See if this is even something he wants uh, you to take on right now. 
And if you do decide to participate, I also wanted to say you don't have to start on March 1st. Uh, you may want to start, you know, 40 days, exactly 40 days before Easter. That would be March 7th. Um, I am going to start on Lent on March 1st, but I do like to do 40 days straight. So that makes it a little weird. I usually end on Palm Sunday, um, but you seek God on that and do it how you feel led to do it, if at all. Okay, so be thinking about that. Uh, next week, we're going to read chapter 7 and 8 of Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. And out of the Bible, we're going to read Mark chapter 6 and 7. So again, that's chapter 7 and 8 out of Jesus the King. And from Mark, we're going to be reading 6 and 7. As always, if at any point you forget what we're scheduled to read this week, you can always check it out under the resources section of my website, amyonthehill.com. I really appreciated hearing from those of you who reached out with your comments and thoughts this week. Um, please keep the comments and questions coming since we're not meeting face to face. It really is such an encouragement uh, to me to hear from you. And I did hear from a lot of you this week. So thank you for that. One person who wrote in this week told me about this really cool video summarizing the book of Mark uh, that is now on the YouVersion app that I've mentioned in past podcasts. For those of you who are new to the podcast, YouVersion, spelled Y-O-U-V-E-R-S-I-O-N, is a really great free Bible app you can get on your smartphone or device that has lots of different translations of scripture and Bible study tools, and it also has some helpful, cool videos you can watch. And one of those videos gives an overview of the Gospel of Mark. It's only about five minutes, and it's definitely worth watching if you get a chance. If you don't have the YouVersion app and you still want to watch it, you can also pull it up on your computer on Bible.com. Just go to Bible.com and click the link at the top of the page that says videos and you'll find it there. As we close, I also want to say to each one of you uh, that I'm proud of you. And that may sound weird, but I think sometimes we need to hear that. We need to believe that about ourselves. And I realize some of you may be a little behind or whatever in your reading, but even so, you're here. You're not quitting. And I'm proud of you. And I want to say to you, you can do this. Romans 8.11 says of those who are in Christ that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And that's why we can say with Paul in Philippians chapter 4, regardless of circumstances, whether we're brought low or we abound in any and every circumstance, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Amen? Amen. Okay, so as always, please receive this benediction from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And today, I really want you to receive this blessing for you personally. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. 